Well, before we open the word, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. And as, as we do so, uh, we want to especially remember Ukraine today. Um, there are a number of people in our church with, with close family and friends that, that are suffering as their land is invaded. Um, the, the church of Jesus over there has been growing and thriving. And so, so all of us as Christians have Christian brothers and sisters there, many of them who in the last few hours have made their way to worship together uh, in, in a war zone. And so, so we want to be remembering our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are suffering. We want to lift them up in prayer and ask God to sustain them uh, as they're there and ask for him to bring an end to, to the needless conflict that's happening there. So, so let's pray and then we'll open up the scriptures to, to 1 Peter 5 today. Well, Father, we come before you today um, to, to do what you've commanded, which is to remember our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are suffering. Uh, they're suffering as a, a tyrant invades their land. We, we've seen the videos of homes being destroyed, of soldiers storming the streets. And it's easy for us to watch those things and to, to believe that the powers of this world are the most powerful things there are. And if it's easy for us to believe that, how much easier must it be for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine to look out the window and to, to believe that as well. So, so today we pray for them. We pray for their safety. We pray for their peace. We pray for their confidence in you, even in the face of evil. Thank you that, that their brave and faithful suffering encourages us, that, that if you give them strength to sing while missers, missiles are flying, you'll surely sustain us in, in everything that we go through. So forgive us for, for doubting that. And, and Father, as we open up the same book that they opened up this morning, we pray that you'd help us to find the strength to follow you here, help us to find encouragement in your grace, and help us to find a reminder of the things that will sustain us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in 1 Peter 5 today. This is the, the last day in our study of 1 Peter. Next week, we'll start the Apostles' Creed. And then once we've worked our way through that, we'll go into 2 Peter, Lord willing. And we're actually going to rewind a couple verses and do a little bit of overlap today. So we're starting in 1 Peter 5, verse 10. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so a major theme as we've gone through First uh, Peter has been the theme of faithfully enduring the suffering of the Christian life. And so we started this book in September and we followed Peter's flow of thought, talking about suffering from a number of different angles. And, and it's an encouraging book on the one hand because it tells us that there is hope for our suffering, but then in some ways can be a little discouraging because it tells us that the Christian life will be hard. But what we need from the word of God, we get from the word of God, which is truth. The Bible doesn't deny that suffering exists and that it's real. It doesn't spin the truth. Our suffering doesn't get any easier if we pretend that we're not suffering. And also if we promise people that if they follow Jesus, that they'll have a life free from suffering, they'll only inevitably be jaded and disillusioned because it will hit all of us. Jesus didn't promise a life without suffering. He didn't promise utopia and here and now because he knows that to promise that would, would be to lie. But again, this book isn't gloomy. It, it presents reality, but it also gives us what we need to persevere through the suffering with faithfulness to Jesus and with joy intact. 
And what we need is not the, the false prosperity gospel promises guaranteeing us that things will get better um, here for sure, because sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But we need something that will make the inevitable suffering of the Christian life worth it. Something that will enable us to say that there will be losses, there will be pain, there might be scorn from others, there will be exhaustion, there will be difficulties in many spheres of life because we follow Jesus, and it will all be worth it. It's still worth following Jesus despite all of this. Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish psychologist, was imprisoned in concentration camps for three years, including Auschwitz, where his mother and his brother were gassed, and Bergen-Belsen, where his wife died of typhus. And, and when he was liberated, he wrote a famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, which was in part an attempt to see what made the difference between the prisoners who died and the prisoners who lived through it all. Because many of the prisoners weren't executed, but they still died, while many who went through the same trials went, went on to even thrive once they were liberated from there. And, and this is what he said. He said, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. And so it wasn't just the hunger and all the, the privations of the camps that did people in, but it was a loss of hope and a loss of purpose and a loss of meaning. And now Frankel in his conclusion stopped short of robust biblical hope. He wasn't a believer in Christ, but he did see that hope is an awfully big factor in being able to endure. At one point when he was working in a camp hospital and he noticed that the death rate spiked between Christmas and New Year's in 1944. And the only reason he could think for that spike in the death rate was that many of the prisoners thought that they would be liberated just before Christmas. And then when that didn't materialize, they gave up hope and, and they died. And so we need hope. And, and what Peter gives us here is, is not any remedy for suffering so that we don't have to suffer, but he gives us the reasons and the meaning for living so that we can make that suffering worth it. So he gives us not just that reality check that, that to follow Jesus will mean suffering, but he gives us powerful hope that we can endure it with faithfulness and joy. And this makes this book not a downer at all, but very real and very encouraging and empowering to the Christian life. And the three things that we'll pull out of these verses that we just read today as the, the purpose-giving, meaning-giving reasons for persevering and suffering are the true hope of glory, the true grace of God, and the true Christian community. So again, verse 10, he says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And this hope of glory, again and again in the Bible, is used as the counterweight to our present sufferings. I mentioned a few verses last week, but I think it's worth looking at these again because these verses aren't just presenting us with whimsy and sentiment, but they're giving us this solid promise, this solid weighty thing that we can have in our hearts that will help us make it through suffering, something to outweigh what we go through here. In Romans 8.18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
So in all three of these passages, you have suffering now, but glory then. Affliction now, but an eternal weight of glory. Things to endure now, but eternal glory then. The glory outweighs the suffering. So what is that? What is glory? What is the weight of glory that we'll receive that'll outweigh all of life's sufferings? Because knowing that is a big part of our hope and a big part of what keeps us going in the Christian life. Well, all of us have hearts that are hardwired to seek glory. We're all drawn toward really amazing things. There's the great movie with the satisfying plot line, the the sports game with the exciting ending, the meal where everything tastes exactly right and it's truly satisfying all the way down. We're drawn to things that are amazing, to things that are perfect, and we always kind of hold out this hope that this one great experience can truly satisfy. That maybe if I had the perfect vacation, the perfect meal with friends, the the perfect something out there, if I got that in my life, that would satisfy my heart. But we all know that nothing in this world does end up satisfying. In his excellent essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis calls this the inconsolable secret. That, That we're all after something, and, and we're not sure what it is we're after. Sometimes we call it beauty, sometimes nostalgia, but we're after this like heart-satisfying, perfect experience that we believe is out there, but we also kind of know it's not because we never achieve it. We have this glory-seeking orientation in our hearts. If you ever Google photos of abandoned places, you'll see like these spooky pictures of places that at one time were glorious. They're amazing before, but now they've become a a shell of their former selves. They're they're still pretty amazing places to visit, but they no longer have their former glory. They once held life, they once held activity and wealth and splendor, but now they're overgrown and they're in disrepair. They're not what they were. And as people, we're just like those places. Where people achieve a lot, people do amazing things, they build incredible cultures, but in reality, we all have the sense that we're really just a shell of what we once were and what we were intended to be. And in Genesis chapter one, we have the story of God making almost everything in in the first five days with one day to go. He's spoken the universe into existence. He forms it into its glory and everything that we can see in the night sky through the Hubble telescope, far off galaxies and quasars and pillars of gas that are incredible in their size and color and splendor were all created by God to reflect his glory. And on those first five days, God God formed things and he formed animals. And at the end, he pronounced what he made good on all those days. And then on day six, God says, well, today's the grand finale. We're going to create something that not only shows our glory, but reflects our image. And so in Genesis 1.26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you go down to verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So God creates the man and woman in his image, and he says, out of all the material things in the universe, you're the most glorious. You're a little lower than the angels because you carry on you the image of God. So he creates man and woman. He calls them not just good, but very good. Psalm 8.5 says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. 
So we were made by God and we were crowned with glory by God and we were glorious because we reflected his glory and we were made to receive honor from God. So imagine what that would be like. Imagine if you're, you're Adam and Eve, when you've first been made by God, he's called you very good. He's crowned you with glory and honor. Genesis 3 says that God would come down and, and walk with them in the cool of the day. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like to walk with God in the garden? With this sense that not only was God amazing, but this amazing God looked at you and said that you're very good. You were honored by him. Imagine the kind of fulfillment and satisfaction that would bring to receive glory from the God of the universe. Imagine to hear God, what it would be like to hear God say, you're very good. You're made in my image. You're the most glorious thing in the material universe. In that garden, with that kind of approval, you'd feel totally at home, you'd feel totally at peace, totally satisfied, and that was glory. Think of all this would do for your heart. You would feel totally provided for. God, who just spoke everything into existence, looks at you and thinks you're very good. There'd never be any worry that you would be broke or destitute because the God who owns the universe looks at you with love. You'll always have what you need. You'd feel totally safe. I mean, nothing bad could happen to you because you're near to the heart of God. You're not afraid of anything. There'd be no fear at all. You'd experience unmatched intimacy because here's God who knows you fully all the way to the bottom, every thought, every word. He's fully aware of all of them and he calls you very good and honors you. You'd know your place in the world. They had dominion over the earth given by God and without having to struggle for it, they were kind of the masters of their domain in just the right way. They had a job designed just for them, meaningful work that was just right. It was satisfying, it produced results. In that place, you'd be doing exactly what you were made for in perfect relationship with God. So you'd have safety and intimacy and authority and good work to do, meaning and place and acceptance and warmth of home. That's what Eden was. And that's the glory that God crowned us with. But we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve sinned. They believed a lie and they lost their former glory. In Genesis 3, 23, it says, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So they were kept out of that glory. And ever since Adam and Eve, we've all been born east of Eden. And now we're like those abandoned places that you can still see traces of the formal glory in, but after being cut off from the source and after millennia of decay, we're nowhere near what we once were. Since that day that we got ourselves thrown out of Eden, whether we believe in God or not, we're spending an enormous amount of energy in our lives trying to break back in. We're trying to recapture that former glory because we need it. We need that voice of God that that calls us very good and honors us. We need that sense of acceptance and approval, that sense of meaning and purpose. We need the perfect provision, the perfect job, the perfect peace, the perfect intimacy that we had before. We still crave that. And whether we know it's driving it or not, that is what drives an awful lot of what we do, even if we don't believe in God. Because we want to be crowned with glory and honor like we once were. 
We want that perfect, infinite acceptance and honor. And this is why we resonate deeply with scenes in movies where there's a big, glorious ending. You know, coach puts Rudy in, and at the end of the game, he sacks the quarterback, and the game's over, and they hoist him up on their shoulders, and the the stands are chanting his name. He got his glory, and we watch it, and and we tear up. Some of us do. The... (laughs) I mean, the greatest experiences imaginable for some of us are things like winning the Super Bowl and and hoisting the trophy over our heads with confetti flying, millions of adoring fans looking on. You're awarded the MVP. You have the glory. We dream of writing the book that everybody reads, of being the valedictorian, of seeing our kids so thrive that we're known as the most masterful of all parents. We're striving for glory. And our hunger for that to be us with the trophy or to have the crowd shouting our names or to have everybody know about our achievements points to this condition that all of us have, that we've all shared since Eden, that in our hearts we were made for glory, we were designed for it, but we don't really know what we're craving, so we go looking for it in all the wrong places by all the wrong means. Usually we go to other people. We look to other people to give us glory, even though those people have the same deficiencies that we have. They have the same needs. And even on the rare occasions when we receive the accolades, they prove not to be what we're after. And that's because we're receiving these accolades from other people who are flawed like we are, so it doesn't seem quite as meaningful as it could. Or we're receiving accolades from people who don't know us very well. They see one side of us, but we know if they got closer, they wouldn't think as highly of us as they do. So we have those moments where we get the glory, but it still doesn't cut it. So we're left looking everywhere for Eden, but it's like there's a flaming sword that guards the way and we can't get back in. C.S. Lewis said that society is always trying to place this spell on us to convince us that we can have that heaven here. That's just a little bit farther down the road, so just keep chasing after it, but we just never get there. So we're striving for glory. We're never achieving it. None of us get the, the thing that we think we're living for. And if we get it, we find out that it's a mirage that never satisfies like we thought it would. But in the gospel, God has called us to eternal glory in Christ. That's the thing we're after. There's a moment coming when all who know Christ will stand before the judgment throne. And because Christ has taken our sin and given us his righteousness, the Father will say to us, well done. That'll be the glory that we're after. Lewis defines glory as accolades from God when the one who actually has glory to give, gives it to us. We'll be whole, we'll be consoled, we'll be complete. And Christians, that's coming. Our light and momentary trouble is achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The sufferings of this present age aren't worthy of being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. And because that's true, we can endure. We can keep going. The hope of glory sustains us. And so does verse 12, the true grace of God. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he says there's a true grace of God that we can stand firm in. And here's another thing that we have to endure suffering, that we have this real and true grace of God, which also implies that there are false forms of the grace of God that are out there that we should be aware of. 
And really, there are two major forms of false grace, and, and one is the grace that excuses sin or allows sin or that doesn't change us. Jude talks about this, Jude 1.4, it says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were, were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he says some people would take the grace that we have from God and twist it. They would twist it in a way so that Jesus isn't our master, so he isn't our Lord. So it allows for us to do whatever we want. And so we'll do things like where we say, man, I'm, I'm a Christian, I've been forgiven, I'm covered by grace, so I'll just do whatever I want now, I'm just gonna kind of sin it up. Uh, I, I don't wanna be legalistic, I don't wanna be religious, I, I don't wanna be all about rules, so I'll blatantly do what I know to be sin and I'll just say it's cool because I'm forgiven. And we pray a prayer for salvation, we're all set now, and so we just go on doing whatever it was that we wanted to do before. That's a false grace of God. Now, we might think that people who think that way believe the gospel too much, that they're too into grace, but they actually believe it too little. They, they think that the gospel is only the solution for our guilt and our forgiveness, but they fail to realize that the gospel is also the power for our growth and our change and our practical holiness. But be careful, because, because the fix for that false form of grace could sometimes be in our minds another opposite false form of grace. And that's the form of God's grace that, that doesn't really exist, but that we think can be earned with human rules and effort. God's grace is free. It can't be earned. It can't be de demanded. Grace is a gift. And if we ever get to a place where we think, I've done enough, I've been religious enough, I've been moral enough, so now I deserve God's grace, then we don't know what God's grace is. And if we ever think that, it's because we don't know ourselves very well either. The scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He never owes us anything. And there's never anything we could do that puts God in our debt or that gives us the right to make demands on God. Grace actually means that we don't have rights before God. Grace means that God is never obligated, never in our debt, never restricted. He's always totally free. But what can happen to us sometimes when, when good church people hear that nothing we do makes us okay, no obedience makes God owe us anything, and that we're utterly dependent on a free God who gives grace where he wills, we can actually get a little bit mad at that. Because then we lose our control. We lose our ability to tell God what to do. We lose the, the leg up we thought we had over our neighbors by being so religious and being so good ourselves. And this is a real danger for us, for, for church people. We can think that all of our singing, all of our tithing, all of our serving, all of our working, all of our opening our homes, all of our studying our Bibles and praying and doing mercy work and evangelism, which is all good, but we can think that I did those things and therefore I deserve God's grace. But when we do good to get God to do something, it's actually a subtle attempt to get God in our service, to switch places with God to be the one who can call all the shots while God's the one who does our bidding. We never think this through all the way, but, but often we're being good because we want to be God. We want to be able to control God. But the true grace of God makes us Christians who are utterly always dependent 
on God's grace. Good, clean people can despise God's grace because we don't want to acknowledge that, that what we need from God is something that we don't deserve, something that we could never earn, and that whether or not we get that blessing is completely out of our control. We want to be in control. Good, clean people can sometimes avoid repenting and trusting in the Savior because they think that they're okay because of their moralism and because of their religion. Good, clean people can love the benefits of religion, of feeling self-righteous, of feeling elite, of feeling better or smarter than your neighbors. But then what will happen is when suffering comes or your neighbors start to think less of you because of your faith or society rejects your faith or, or even worse, if it ever becomes a fiery persecution like Peter warns about, we'll never stand. Because nobody can stand on false grace. The false grace of legalism or the false grace of license, it doesn't give us anything worth living for. Nobody wants to stand in that. We know that legalistic religion poisons and demoralizes. We know that a gospel that doesn't change us and how we live seems powerless and not worth it. But the true grace of God is this. Jesus died for sinners like us. We were so bad that, that he had to. But he died and rose again so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And belief isn't something we do. It's not a moral effort. It's just reaching out an empty hand and receiving the free gift of God that we have in Jesus. To do so, we have to let go of the other things that were driving us, the other things that were ultimate to us. But without offering him any of our works at all, we turn and receive the grace that's greater than all of our sin. And we're forgiven by God. But scripture says that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And so Peter ends this book by saying this is the true grace of God after spending five chapters unpacking an awful lot of what that grace of God does in our lives. First Peter 1.8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. So when we receive the true grace of God, it gives us a love for God and a joy in God that's inexpressible. 1 Peter 1.13, he says, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the grace of God enables us to set our hope on the return of Jesus and to have minds that are sober and prepared for action. 1 Peter 1.15 and 16 say, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the grace of God calls us to live holy lives set apart for God's use. In 122, he said, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The true grace of God creates in us an earnest and devoted love for one another. In 2.1, he said, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. So true grace allows us to do away with the sins that ruin Christian community. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So receiving true grace puts a hunger for the word of God in us. 2.12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
So true grace allows us to do good deeds in the sight of those who would malign us or mistreat us. And then he goes on to say that the grace of God allows us to persevere under leaders who don't know Christ. In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. The true grace of God creates humility in us. Now, none of the obedience that grace creates in us gives us grounds for boasting or or superiority because when it all comes down to it, we are Christians because of God's free grace and not because of any of our efforts at obedience. But Peter wrote all of that about what grace should do in our lives, and he says, this is the true grace of God. Stand in it. God's grace is free, and it's also transformative. And even though we go through an awful lot of suffering, we have the true grace of God. And that's worth rejoicing in even when everything else seems lost. So we have the hope of eternal glory. We have the true grace of God to stand in. And we won't spend much time on it because we did last week. But Peter ends the book by pointing to some of the elements of the Christian community, calling out some of the names of the faithful people who are there. In verse 12, he talks about Silvanus. And by Silvanus, um, when he says that this letter was sent by Silvanus, he probably means that he delivered the letter from Peter. In verse 13, he says, She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Uh, We're not sure who she, who's at Babylon is. Some people think it might be Peter's wife. Uh, It could be a prominent woman in the church at Rome whose, whose name Peter is kind of hiding so that if the letter gets intercepted, it won't bring any kind of trouble on her. It seems like the majority of commentators think that when he talks about the she who's at Babylon, he's just talking about the church at Rome where Peter is. The, the noun for church, ecclesia, is a feminine noun, so you would refer to the whole church as a whole as a she. And so whoever she who is at Babylon is, she or all the she's, they all want to send their greetings. And Mark is there with Peter, probably the Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. So Peter isn't the only one doing the work. He isn't the only one doing the writing. He isn't the only one sharing this faith. There are a lot of people doing that. There's a whole community of Christian believers, even in Rome, where the tension is thick, where the persecution is brewing, the community is alive. And all these people are sending their greetings. They want to connect with the people who will read this letter. They want to express some connection with the Christian community there. And historically, it really was this love within the Christian community that sustained an awful lot of people through awful hard persecution. That's why they were so eager. Well, send my greeting. I want to make sure they hear from me. I want to make sure they hear my love. And so it's worth asking us if we're pursuing that. Are we pursuing connection with other Christians? How are we making efforts at avoiding isolation? Because the Christian community is a big part of how we endure. And and then he concludes by telling them to do something you can't do through a letter greet one another with a kiss of love. There are actually five letters in the New Testament that end with a command like this, either to greet one another with a holy kiss or to greet one another with a kiss of love. And, and some people have taken that liturgically, where in, in many parts of the world, there's actually a ritual greeting on, or ritual kiss on the cheek greeting in churches that you would go to. Um, you, you find this in an awful lot of cultures where people will do that. Others have taken this to say that the emphasis is on holy and love. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a kiss of love. 
that, that we greet one another certainly affectionately, but it's a holy greeting and a greeting with genuine love as opposed to a kiss like Judas's kiss that was phony and hypocritical. And so the emphasis here is not on commanding the kiss, but on commanding the holiness and the love and the greeting. And more in that second camp, but at a minimum, this is teaching us to be genuinely holy and loving and to be near each other, to be in each other's lives, to be affectionate with one another, but only in the holiest of ways, and to greet one another with genuine love, like we would family. Because the people of God are a family that gets us through all of it. And so life will be hard, but the glory that's coming, the true grace of God that we get to stand in, in the Christian family are the things that make it endurable and that make it worth it. So let's pray. Well, Father, in light of all that you promise us in Christ, it's, it's evident to us that we've fallen short. We haven't lived with our ultimate hope being the hope of true glory. We've, we've settled, and settled for less than true forms of grace through legalism or through license. And we also haven't perceived your glory in one another or loved our neighbors as ourselves. And you've offered us all these great truths and all these great promises to keep our hearts afloat and to give us what we need to endure suffering. But, but we confess that we haven't been clinging to these life preservers that you've thrown us. So forgive us. As we've suffered, however mild it is, we've, we've fallen prey to despair to cynicism, to living just for ourselves, absent of love. We've isolated ourselves in our pain instead of drawing near to your community. So forgive us for this. Jesus, we thank you for your perfections. We, we thank you that you always lived in light of the glory that was coming. You even went to the cross confident in the ultimate joy that was set before you. And thank you that, that there you paid for our sins. Thank you that your perfect love and your perfect righteousness is counted as ours because of the faith in the gospel that you've given us. And Spirit, we pray that you'd reorient our hearts even now as we continue to worship you. Help us to believe in the glory that's coming. Help us to believe that because of the true grace of God, you've taken now even these sins that we've confessed to you and buried them in the bottom of the sea. Remind us of how true the grace of God is for us and how deeply it cures us. And we pray that these hopes would give us all that we need to endure suffering together with your community. Let them give us all the resources we need to love one another, and to keep our faith growing strong until we don't need it anymore because we see you face to face. We're confident that you'll answer these prayers because we're praying them in the strong name of Jesus.